I like college basketball. I don't get to watch a lot of it, but I like it. And it's, it's interesting to see how 18, 19 year old, really boys, very young men, respond to hostile settings. Because there's nothing more hostile than a team going into a, an opponent's arena and that arena being jam-packed and the noise level just resonating through the building. And often when a game begins, it's easy for the visiting team to get a little bit out of sync, uh, to rush down the court, uh, to make errant passes, uh, to take unwise shots. And so a good coach will call an early timeout, he'll gather them around and, and he'll remind them, uh, boys, it's not that difficult. Make good passes, shoot open shots, get positions for rebounds, and play at our pace. That's basketball 101. What I want to talk about this morning is Christianity 101. Often we grow in our Christian life, and as we, as we grow and mature and develop, sometimes we forget something of the basics. Uh, we forget that, that it's not that complex. That's what we see when we think about Christianity 101. That's what we see in the passage this morning. That our relationship with Jesus is not as complex as we sometimes think that it is. I'd like to begin reading in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10 and read all the way through verse 37 as you follow along. And behold, a lawyer, or maybe better, a scribe, stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the scribe answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, likewise a Levite also. When he came to the place where, came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put on him his own, and put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the, hand, into the robber's hands? And the scribe said, 
the one who showed compassion to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now you'll notice the very next story is the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus. And Mary is sitting at, sitting at Jesus' feet. What Luke does in this narrative is he takes the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and first he deals with the second half of that great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Next week, we'll look at Christianity 101, and we'll look at the other part of the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the story of Mary and Martha. Sometimes we think these two stories are disparate, uh, they, they, they don't work together, but they work together perfectly well as examples of what it means to love God wholeheartedly and love our neighbor as ourselves. But today, uh, we're looking at love your neighbor. I want you to notice that in the opening section, there's an important theological question. What is the greatest commandment? There are over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. I think it's 613. Out of all of those commandments, this scribe, when we think of a lawyer, we think maybe of a barrister or something like that. This is a, a rabbinical scholar. This rabbinical scholar is putting Jesus to the test because obviously all of God's commands are important, but if someone were to ask you, is it better for your neighbor to covet your house or for your neighbor to kill you? Which would you rather have? Well, I'd rather they covet my house. So in that sense, some commandments have, have greater impact than other commandments. So out of all of the commandments, all 613 or so, which is the most important? And so Jesus turns the question around. He says, what about you? What do you think is the most important commandment? And so what the scribe does, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So he brings together these two important passages, these two key texts. He says, if you're going to take all 613 commands, they all in some way relate to one of these two commands, to love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do this and, and you will live. And so wanting to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? There was some debate in the first century as to who one's neighbor was. Nobody would dispute that your neighbor lived next door to you. But how far did it extend? To the house on the other side of your neighbor or someone that lived across the village, someone from another, from another town? How many people are my neighbor? And so he asked the question with duplicity of heart, wanting to justify himself. So Jesus tells a story. It's a shocking story. It's a stunning story. It's a story that everyone in the crowd would have been quite pleased with initially. It's a story about someone going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is about 2,000 feet above sea level. 
Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level in the Judean wilderness, not very far from the, from the Jordan River. It's about a 20-mile journey as the crow flies from Jerusalem to, to uh, Jericho. So you are descending approximately 3,000 feet when you leave Jerusalem and you make your way to Jericho. Even today, if you, if you take a tour of Israel, you'll probably go from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem, depending upon how the tour progresses. And it's quite a winding, arduous road. You can only imagine what it must have been like in the first century. Uh, filled with all kinds of places that provided opportunities for robbers to, to, to jump on, to rob, to beat, to kill unexpected travelers. And in this story, there's an unexpected traveler, and he's beaten and left virtually dead. So coming from Jerusalem now are pre a priest and a Levite. They've been in Jerusalem serving in the temple. The priests served in the temple. The Levites assisted the priests serving in the temple. They've been doing religious work, and they've been serving God by serving in the temple. And so they come upon the man at different times as they're making their way from Jerusalem toward Jericho, and, and there he is on the other side of the road, and they're uncertain if he's alive or dead. But they're not going to take any chances because if they were to come into contact with a corpse, they would be ritually impure. So rather than take a chance that the man may be alive rather than dead, they find it easier just to pass by on the other side and leave him there wounded and bleeding and dying. Now, the crowds would have been ecstatic hearing this. Who doesn't like a story where the preacher and the deacons are the bad guys? Everybody likes that kind of story. And so the, the crowds would have been very, very keyed into what Jesus is saying. Yes, these are snobs, these arrogant people like the priest and the Levites. They look down on us. They speak demeaningly and depreciatory of us because we don't live up to their standards. And so they would have thought that very, very good. But then Jesus introduces a character, the Samaritan. Now you have to remember that Samaritan and Jews hated one another. There was racial indignity between the two groups. Sometimes we're uncertain about what's the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. Because many Jews lived in Galilee and many Jews lived in Judea, but right in between the two were the Samaritans. After the kingdom was divided, after Solomon's death, at the unwise decisions of his son, the ten northern tribes separated from the two southern tribes. So you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom's base of capital and operation was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was decimated during a, a, an Assyrian invasion. The Assyrians demolished the ten northern tribes. And they took into exile those who were educated and strong and could be used in, in slave labor in some kind of way. And then they, they, they shipped in all of the dregs of their society, the Assyrian society. 
And so there was the intermarriage of the remnants of the northern kingdom with the Assyrians that were, that were uh, put in. And so they developed a religion that was semi-Jewish, sem, 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 somewhat heterodox. And, and the Jewish people considered them ethically and racially compromised, religiously compromised. And so they, they, did, they wanted very, very little to do with them. So while they would have been tracking the crowd with Jesus, what Jesus was teaching and saying, they'd have been very pleased with what they were hearing. When he begins to talk about a Samaritan, we think of the good Samaritan. They would have never put good with Samaritan. There were no good Samaritans. They, they were racially and they were ethnically and they were religiously compromised. There, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. In some ways, maybe it's hard for us in, a, in the multicultural setting that, that we live in to think about that. Uh, many of you have heard me tell the story before that when Jalen and I were in, in Louisiana and, and we were in this little community of about uh, uh, 300 people, very racially divided, and as she and I are witnessing to, to all kinds of people, white people, black people, Hispanic people, people of, uh, that, are, that are passing through the town, uh, the KKK came to me one night, 26 years old I am, I'm leaving a funeral home, I'm getting ready to get in my car, and three or four men approached me and confronted me from the local KKK chapter about reaching out and witnessing and inviting African-American people to, to church. Well, it would have been like me telling a story to them at a KKK rally and then them hearing that a person of another ethnicity is the, is the hero of the story. The crowd would have begun to be seething toward Jesus as was the lawyer. And so Jesus describes the, the priest and the Levite, and then he describes in some detail the, the, the actions of the Samaritan. Notice the Samaritan stopped, got off of his animal, and went over to the man. He might not have known if the man was dead or alive, but if he's alive, he's on the verge of death. And so the Samaritan approaches the man. He, he pour, pours healing oil and wine on the man's injuries, and then he binds up his wounds. He places the man on his donkey and leads the donkey to the nearest village. He goes to an inn in the village, and he spends the, the night with the man, caring for the man, nursing the man through the night. And then he says to the owner of the inn, if you'll take care of him, here's money to go toward the expenses, and if it's anything beyond this, I'll be back, and I will cover the remainder of the, of the expenses. Obviously, in the story world, the innkeeper trusted the Samaritan. He trusted that he was good for his word. And so Jesus then asked the penetrating question, which of the men proved to be a good neighbor? Notice he didn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? Which one acted neighborly, if we could put it 
in terms like that. That is, the third thought I want you to notice this morning is two potentially life-changing questions is this. Who is my neighbor or who is your neighbor? And what kind of neighbor are you? Who is your neighbor and what kind of neighbor are you? You'll notice that when Jesus asked the religious or asked the scribe, the scholar, the rabbi, the professor, the question, he doesn't say the one who loved, but the one who showed compassion, because compassion and love are intricately related. There's no love without compassion. You can't be compassionate and not loving. Uh, let me read to you a kind of a homespun definition of compassion. You can decide whether you think I did a good job with it or not. But compassion is not an elitist gone slumming. It's not like some multimillionaire or some movie star or some dignitary once a year going down to the local soup kitchen and serving soup to homeless people and then getting a big photo op about it. That's an elitist gone slumming. Compassion is not a, an elitist gone slumming, but a heart transformed by grace that genuinely loves those created in the image of God, wherever they may be found. Who is my neighbor? Those with whom I am in regular proximity and those whose paths I providentially cross. First thing about those who, with whom I, I, I live in close proximity, if you're married, your neighbor is first the person that slept beside you last night. They are your neighbor. Or maybe it's the three-year-old child down the hallway that caused you not to sleep last night. He or she is your neighbor. Why would we treat people outside our home better than we treat the people inside our home? Many people speak to the people inside their homes the way they would never speak to anyone outside their home. Many people will speak to their children in a way they would never let their children speak to them. So when we say love your neighbor, let's start right at home. Let's think of it in concentric circles for just a moment. So, so then we walk out on the front step. We look to the left, there's a neighbor. We look to the right, there's a neighbor. We look across the street, there's a neighbor. We look to the other side, there's a neighbor. There's our neighbors. The first concentric circle is our home. The next concentric circle are the people that live near us. We get in the car and we go to work. Who is our neighbor? It's the man or the lady sitting next to us at the cubicle beside us. It's the person stocking the grocery store shelves that we, that we work with. It's the mom or the dad that we're sitting next to at ballet class as our children are taking ballet. So every Thursday afternoon we're at ballet class, there we sit, they sit, they're our neighbor. It's whomever we are in close proximity with and those with whom we cross paths 
providentially. I want us to, to think for just a moment about why don't we love our neighbors better? Let me give you some suggestions that I thought of this week. Sometimes we say, I don't, my neighbors are inconsiderate. They're just inconsiderate people. And so we use their disposition as unregenerate lost people as an excuse for not loving them well. I'm just too busy for my neighbors. Then Jesus would say, slow down and be less busy. If you're too busy for people, you're probably too busy. Slow down. My neighbors are too different from me. They're just very, very different from me. Well, praise God, we don't need any more people just like you or me. We just don't need them. So he creates us all individually, and we're different from one another. My neighbors want to be left alone. Well, so did we, but Jesus didn't leave us alone, did he? So you pray and ask God for openings and avenues and opportunities that won't be offensive to them, but you don't know. God might use those prayers to make them less inclined to be left alone. Maybe they're hostile to Christianity. Maybe they're pro-LGBTQ+. Maybe you're living next door to two ladies who are married. A single man who's transitioning. Well, what do we do? Jesus says, love your neighbors. And so, we need to be a people that believe this. My love of people is a mirror of my love of God. Mark this down. We don't love God any more than we love people. Because the first and second great commandment are intertwined. They're wrapped up one with another. They're two sides of the same coin. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, let's consider the thought about loving our neighbor for just a moment. Let's think about how can we love our neighbor. Let me just give you some quick suggestions. First, loving your neighbor means being compassionate and tender-hearted toward them. It starts with the person that's sleeping next to you in bed. It extends to the three-year-old down the hallway. It, it expands to the people uh, across the street. It goes along with the coworkers who work beside us. To love our neighbor, I think, means being compassionate and tender-hearted toward them. It's easy to become hard-hearted toward people. But what if Jesus had been hard-hearted toward us? We weren't born Christian people. In fact, there was nothing good in us. Sometimes we forget where we once were. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were by nature children of wrath. That's who we were. And yet Jesus didn't give up on us, but he set his affections 
on us. Um, loving your neighbor means looking out or looking for opportunities to serve them. Just like Jesus washed the disciples' feet, look for opportunities to serve them. We, we've got super good neighbors, and they, they put up with quite a bit from us in this sense. One of the biggest trees in the neighborhood is in our front yard. The slowest and last tree to shed its leaves is in our front yard. Everything's bare, snow is on the ground, and we've got a gigantic tree that's still got about half of its foliage that has to fall. My good neighbors on either side, they spend up until about the first, second week of December cleaning up our leaves out of their yard. On the, on the, last, good, uh, the last good fall, Jay Lynn and I were out there and I'm looking over there. We'd worked hard, cleaned up our yard. It takes a couple of hours to just get it all going and, and squared away. And I looked up and, and I knew the Lord was nudging me. I want you to, to run the, the leaf. We got a big leaf back. I want you to run it over next door. I'm thinking, yeah, he probably wouldn't want me to. So I'm, I'm talking to myself, but really I'm talking to God. It, it, it might leave ruts in his lawn. and He's very particular about his lawn. I'm thinking, I look over there again, all those leaves are my leaves. He's going to come home from work. He, he did his yard yesterday, and now my leaves are back in his yard. Jalen says, you think we've got to do the neighbor's leaves? I, I, I don't think so. I think I, it might bother him. She says, we probably ought to do the yard. Well, she's usually right. I'm usually wrong. And so uh, we, 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 did the, we did the yard last year. We did it. We did it again this year. And I can tell you, it's, it, it softens them toward us. They're already good people. But who likes living next door to a preacher? Nobody <laughs> likes living next door to a preacher. And so they're serving them. Loving others means speaking kindly to them. The way that Jesus speaks to us, we shouldn't speak to others in ways Jesus doesn't speak to us. Loving others means thinking less about yourself. That will help your marriage in a heartbeat. But it should permeate every area of life, thinking less about ourselves and more about others. Loving your neighbor means looking for opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Sometimes just a little bit at a time. Let me see if I can tie it all, all together and move us toward an appropriate appreciation for how this story prepares us for the Lord's Supper. As I said a little bit earlier, your love for people is a mirror of your love for God. Don't fool yourself into thinking otherwise. Your relationship to God is no closer than your relationship to your spouse. Your relationship with God is no more passionate than your concern and love for people. A.W. Tozer put it this way, a frightened world needs a fearless church because it's a little bit, it's a little bit frightening to love others because you don't know if they'll love you back. A frightened world needs a fearless church 
So as we think about this story and we think about the Lord's Supper, allow me to take a little bit of privilege with the text for just a moment. If you don't like it, then stay with me. I won't do it again for 22 more years. But give me a, give me a moment to take a little bit of privilege with the text. You and I spiritually were like that man beaten and ravaged by Satan's sin and death. We were left for dead. Religion passed us by. All the feel-good Jesus people passed us by. Because feel-good Jesus people don't understand that Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So the fuzzy feel-good Jesus people aren't that helpful, nor are the people that are pompous and religious that will keep sinners at arm's length. This is a Jesus who didn't get off his beast, he left the glories of heaven to step into the darkness of humanity. He didn't just pour oil and wine on our wounds, he died for our sins. He took our sins and his body on the tree. He didn't just dust us up and said, be a good buddy. No, he said, I'm going to enjoy you by my spirit, and I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. He redeemed us to love him and to love others. That's what the Lord's Supper is reminding us of. He left heaven to come to earth because he believed that Leviticus 19 was intended to be lived out. Love others. He's loved us well by redeeming us. You may be a guest today and and, and you're wondering, Pastor, is it all right for me to participate in the Lord's Supper? If you've been born again by the Spirit of God and you've been baptized, uh, we would invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. You might wonder, well, Pastor, why do you mention baptism? Well, baptism is the first act of obedience. It's the first step of obedience. After a person has been born again by the Spirit of God and they they have received the grace of God and the salvation that is found only in Christ, baptism is the step where a person publicly confesses, publicly professes their allegiance to King Jesus. You're not saved by being baptized. That's a heresy. You're saved by grace through faith. But baptism is a profession of my faith. And Jesus calls us to be baptized. So there needs to be a little bit of understanding. That is, the new convert needs to be shepherded and discipled to understand and make sure they have genuinely put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they have been born again by God's Spirit, and that they understand what baptism represents. No Nowhere in the New Testament do we find this prolonged period of time, days, months, weeks, years, between conversion and salvation where you prove yourself. Now, it's every church's responsibility to make sure that as best they can discern that a person has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and then are baptized. But, but that's why we say, believer in Christ Jesus and baptized 
into Christ Jesus. I'm going to lead us in prayer in just a moment, and then the deacons will come forward. Peter Holmes is going to assist me today. For the last uh, three years, Robbie Skaggs, Officer Skaggs, has been our chairman of our deacons and uh, did such a wonderful job. He, he helped us navigate what is, you know, surely one of the most difficult times in the life of any church, the, the pandemic. And he's, he's still on our, on our deacon, uh, deacon servant leaders, uh, but our practice is every couple of years to, to rotate a new deacon chairman. So Peter Holmes is now chairman of our deacons. He'll assist me in just a moment. And Chip Yankee is our vice chairman of, of deacons. And so I'm going to ask you if you'll join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that you did not leave us to ourselves. Although we were ravaged by sin, beaten brutally by the world, the flesh, and the devil, you left the glory of heaven to come to earth to save and redeem people like us. Thank you that you love us well. Thank you that the way that you love us well is, an, is emblematic and representative of the way that we should love others well. And yet we're weak and we're anemic. Strengthen us, Father, as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.